We love hearing from our audience, so send us an email at needtoknow at wilsoncenter.org. As you can see from our shows, we host a broad mix of expertise here at the Wilson Center. So maybe you have a burning foreign policy question you think we can answer, or an idea for a foreign policy topic that we can cover. We'd love to hear from you. Need to know at wilsoncenter.org. We'd also appreciate comments and ratings on your podcast distributor as well. Thank you for your feedback and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. I'm your host, Aaron Jones, bringing you the best nonpartisan information from our experts that you need to know. Joining me today in the Wilson Center studio for the Need to Know podcast is Stacy Clausen, who is a global fellow at the Kennan Institute and an expert on China and Russia and their relationship. And we wanted to get her in to talk about that today. So welcome, Stacy. Thanks. So as over the last couple of years, we've seen the relationship with Russia deteriorate. We've seen a lot more competition with China and a trade war with China. There's been some concern among some circles that these two countries could form an alliance against the United States or develop more affinity for each other because they are neighbors. Tell us what you think about that. Yeah, well, for quite a while, there was a strong camp that said there's absolutely no way these two countries are going to form an alliance. Um, They are historical nemeses until almost up until the end of the Cold War. Um, They are asymmetrical uh, partners at the very least. That is that China's on the ascendancy and, and Russia's sort of a revisionist country looking for a glorious past. And so it felt like most analysts were completely dismissing it. And then there were a few of us who started to do some research and realized that, well, but at the Security Council, for example, their votes are in sync. Not only that, but their statements are in sync. Or there were some that were looking at their trading relationship and realizing that they were the volumes of trade were going up and that, you know, the producer Russia of oil, gas and minerals was meeting increasingly the demand of China, um, the consumer, and that even their military technical sales were, were going up. But then I think after 2014 and and uh, the imposition of sanctions by us in Europe against Russia for Crimea and a variety of other things, combined with then this trade war with China, has sort of um, pushed them together. It's been a driving force that's pushed them together. And there definitely are signs that they're increasingly uh, – cooperating in a variety of areas to the point where President Putin of Russia even mentioned the word alliance twice in the past month or so. You you said historically a lot of analysts dismiss this, and it really changed in 2014. During the Cold War, explain to us how this relationship worked when you had the USSR and you had China, say, under Mao. both communist countries, there was not uh, much working together at that time? No, and there was a falling out. They actually had a border war in the late 60s, and then there was a sort of falling out period. And we took advantage of that, this sort of theory of the Kissingerian Triangle, where we uh, reconnected with uh, China and uh, established formal diplomatic relations. And this was a strategy on our part 
to take advantage of what was already a declining relationship between these two communist nations. And we were able to sort of pretty much drive this wedge and take advantage of this all throughout most of the end of the Cold War. And so after the USSR breaks up, was Russia trying to get with China or was China just, eh, we, you know, we, you guys have your own problems. We're going to we're going to keep developing over here. No, interestingly, they almost immediately reached out uh, and 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 immediately started talking about uh, a more secure, delineated border about increasing trade. And there was kind of an immediate need, particularly from the Russian side of the border, in terms of cheap goods that Chinese traders could provide and um, some sort of economy where other economy had collapsed at the end of the um, Soviet Union. And so it was kind of a, a natural progression. But throughout then the 90s, um, they they didn't have much success on negotiation of things like pipelines, um, things like electricity lines, uh, railway, maybe bridges mm -hmm. over a uh, river that divides the border. Um, but every time that President Putin would face challenges with Europe, the natural instinct was to go towards, well, we'll just face China. We'll just take our mm. goods. We'll take our um, sort of associations, our affiliations, and we'll look east. Mm. And this was sort of a, of a, a kind of a natural response to Europe. So there was – it always seemed as if – and then there was a formal announcement in 2013 of a pivot to Asia. It always seemed as if that was sort of in the works. Well, we tried to have our own pivot to Asia. <laughs> we did. And we haven't seen too much from that. How is it working for Russia? Is there really a pivot to Asia or is it just a threat that they're giving to Europe that we don't need to look west? We could, we have markets in the east. No, I think, again, I think, you know, even though we named Russia and China our near-peer competitors um, in the latest national security strategy, I think that we have driven them to, together um, not purposefully, perhaps, but definitely as a result of us pursuing policies that restrict the Russian economy mm -hmm. and policies that break off aspects of our trade with China. And Russia has been in a position of needing finance, of needing offshore drilling technology, and of needing an increased demand for its resources, particularly um, along its lucrative northern sea route. Mm -hmm. This route that you can go from Asia to Europe and they say two weeks shorter than you can go through the Suez Canal. So this has been kind of a, a natural marrying of the two at a time when they both find it difficult to deal with the United States. And it's kind of bolstered the leadership as well in both countries because it's very natural to come together when you both believe that there shouldn't be a single hegemon mm -hmm. in the United States. So they have a strategic alliance in the sense of, of where they're directing their efforts, but they also need one another in terms of uh, resources and finance and technology and markets. You mentioned the Northern Sea Route, and we've had our 
director of the Polar Institute here uh, to talk on the podcast before, and we've talked about how China sees itself as a near-Arctic country and certainly has an interest in the northern sea route. Uh, is that one of those things that's sort of driving them closer together? And is Russia kind of giving any kind of special favor to China when it comes to the northern sea route, which they see as their own, Russia sees as its own territory? Well, it's interesting you say that. I think that that has been the perception but more recently, if you start to track actually how much China has invested, um, other than basically buying liquefied natural gas, um, Russia has sought to balance Chinese interests in the Arctic as of late with other Asian nations. So particularly with India, with Japan and with South Korea. There have been deals where China was the first country that they reached out to the Russians, but not the one they ended up doing the deal with. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that's in part because it's not easy for the two of them to negotiate. It took 10 years to build a pipeline. I think they come, the Chinese, uh, as I understand, are asking for things like sitting on boards or they're asking mm. for drilling rights mm -hmm. or they're asking for um, advances in other areas. And I think the Russians have become concerned about this. And so they start to look for other options, so investors, in, or they have balanced the Chinese offshore drilling, for example, with Japanese and South Korean uh, rigs as well. So it's not straightforward where the China-Russia relationship is right now in the Arctic. Tell us a little bit about what the border looks like uh, between Russia and China. It's not the longest border that Russia has. That's Kazakhstan. And there's also a border with Mongolia. But there is a quite a substantial amount of space there that is a border with China. So what does it look like there as far as the ethnicities, the populations, and the trade that goes on back and forth? Well, I think there's long been concern from the Russians of kind of what they call a yellow peril, an idea that there would be far more people of Chinese ethnicity coming over the border mm -hmm. and uh, establishing uh, towns and robust markets and trade on the Russian side of the border. From what I understand is that that hasn't come to fruition as the Russians thought and that they're actually building bridges, uh, they're actually building railway, they're mm -hmm. actually encouraging and in fact Annually now, President Putin will have a Russian Far East conference, and he will ask the Chinese to invest mm -hmm. in the Russian Far East. I think there's been over 90 or so projects that have been agreed upon, although a very small percentage have yet to get off the ground. Um, and and so there's a sense that maybe the Russian Far East isn't the place to be at the moment economically because of a population drain, because of a lack of infrastructure, because of a lack of desire on the part of Russia to come to sort of profitable agreements with partners. But in general, 
I do recall reading that there was concern that the Chinese perhaps were able to buy land hmm. for agri- agricultural purposes and develop. But I think that um, it's one of those areas that's that's lesser known mm-hmm. to a lot of us and mm-hmm. less understood. And there's not much population in that region. No. And and what did I read yesterday? It's like one to six, I, I want to say, in terms of regions. One million on the Russian side and, and about six on the Chinese side. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's not a heavily populated region at all. You have to understand that Russia has 11 time zones. Right. So the, the the population is mostly, as we know, concentrated in the West, right. in the big cities and on the Western border with Europe. Right. Which would make it hard for Russia to truly pivot to Asia, right? Yes. But geostrategically, it's interesting that Russia and China, they call each other, you know, these strategic partner, and they call each other a closer name than either the two use for anyone else. And they have made it a concerted effort to start to trade in their own currencies instead of dollars, and that Russia will um, swap out dollars for renminbi in terms of its um its reserves. And so they are sort of starting to make changes uh, that would bring them a lot closer together, even in military technology-wise. Uh, I saw an announcement that the Chinese are going to go through with more S-400 purchases. Uh, and the S-400 is? Yeah, an, an anti-missile s- defense system. Okay. There, there are going to be more Amur submarines sold. There are going to be Su-35 sold uh, from Russians to Chinese. And now the latest is that they're even going to help the Chinese potentially with um, – anti-ballistic missile defense systems. Hmm. So all Have of they this... ever done any like military exercises together? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I think one that oftentimes people talk about is Vostok in 2018 right. in yes. the East, where the Chinese, it used to be, this was kind of viewed by the Chinese as an anti-Chinese exercise. It was on the, the near the border region. Mm-hmm. It was going to sort of stage a quasi-invasion and or defense of the border. And in fact, uh, they invited the Russians and invited and, and China brought at least 3,500 troops. And, and the exercises, I understand it, did not have a scenario, obviously, of, of China being um, the opposer. And yes, they are now patrolling together. They are sailing together in the Med, in the Baltic, in the, Jap- in the, um, in the uh, East China Sea. And um, so absolutely, they're they're getting closer and closer in terms of military cooperation. What about China's Belt and Road Initiative? Is Russia involved in that at all? Yeah, um, it it has wanted to be, mm-hmm. and it has wanted to be uh, a primary recipient of the monies that come along with that. Of course, uh, and Who the infrastructure, right? <laughs> right exactly. <laughs> Interestingly, I think it's Kazakhstan so far that has benefited more in terms of that, but. Three out of the four Silk Roads actually go through go go through t- to Europe, mm-hmm. and it's obvious if you look at China and you look at Europe, you see Russia there. And so, um, the Russians, I'm not sure whether they were excited at first or not, but the Chinese announced that the Northern Sea Route was to become a polar Silk Road, mm. and so the idea is that. Um, one of one of its maritime sort of road and belt initiatives is Russian, basically 
territorial water because Russia views the Northern Sea Route as its territorial water, although international legal experts, maritime experts would argue that it's beyond the EEZ and therefore international waters. And that's yet to be decided. But China is basically legitimizing mm-hmm. it as its own pillar, polar silk road by paying the Russians to utilize that. Now right, it's, there's a fee to enter the, that passage, yes, right? Yes, exactly. And you have to, yeah, and you need uh, cutters, you need um, Russian um, uh, search and rescue. Mm, icebreakers um, and ice all breakers, that. Icebreakers, exactly. Mm, interesting. Well, this kind of, you talked about the, the the view that Russia and China have to not see just one hegemon in the world. And it reminded me of when the UN General Assembly met a few weeks ago and the Secretary General talks of his concern over a bifurcated world mm-hmm. with two separate financial systems, two separate internets. Mm. Is that where you think we're headed here? Yeah, definitely. In fact, China and Russia did just sign a treaty on internet security that looks a lot uh, along the lines of what an you know authoritarian regime would want from its internet. In other words, lack of freedom of, of, of use by citizens and high surveillance. Um, absolutely in terms of uh, financial levers, uh, looking for alternative arrangements with investment banks uh, being um, created both by Russia and China together and then China on its own, where Russia is utilizing these investments. Um, Absolutely trying to find an alternative, uh, any way to avoid being punished by the United States, because right now an awful lot is sanctioned, and that affects China as well. When Mm -hmm. you sanction Russia, it affects Chinese companies like uh, shipping company Magnet Costco now is under sanction, and and they're very confused about whether they can operate with Russia in the Northern Sea Route as they plan to carry liquefied natural gas. So I think they're definitely on the move. It's a it's it's an unfulfilled promise, certainly. We're, we're at the beginnings of these banks operating, and they haven't loaned as much as they had planned to by any means, um, the AIB, for example. But I think the, the, the design is ultimately to be able to uh, get out from under um, U.S. Uh, domination and ability to punish mm-hmm. countries. Yeah, it would certainly limit the effect of sanctions. And, of course, there's some who would argue about the effectiveness of sanctions anyway, but it would certainly limit the effectiveness of sanctions if they can kind of shelter themselves into a different a different system. Well, as somebody who watches this, what is out there on the horizon that maybe nobody's talking about? And I think that this whole topic is something I think that is a concern in some circles, uh, but as you said, it has been dismissed. And so um, you know, maybe there's something out there simmering that we just haven't seen yet that maybe policymakers ought to be paying attention to. Well, I wonder how long it's going to be before China demands a bigger role in the Arctic. And um, I think Russia has a role to play in this. And so do we, frankly. And I th- and I say this because, as you mentioned, China sees itself as a, as a near Arctic uh, partner. 
And it is not in the Arctic Council per se, but it is an observer. And there's no way towards membership for observers. But China has worked to try to have a bigger voice in Arctic Council proceedings. It has attempted, as as we've heard in the news, to invest in mines in places like Greenland. It is working with um, northern European countries on railroad projects. It, it, it has a large scientific presence on the Svalbard archipelago, which is um, under Norway sovereignty. And I just, I watched China in the... East and South China Seas. I watch its aggressive maneuvers. I watch its surveilling and its surveillance of um, territory. I watch how it's creating kind of a new maritime law, you know, by by developing artificial islands and then declaring the waters around it to be Chinese. And I wonder how long it is before China is going to uh, demand a bigger presence. And I have a sense that Russia is really important in this equation because Russia owns a large bit of the Arctic. We talked about the Northern Sea Route and China's designs on sort of port infrastructure, um, you know, usage for trade, um, investment in oil and gas development there. And I have a feeling that Russia could, if it wanted to, um, increasingly be at the behest of and or support Chinese efforts to Mm. gain a greater foothold in the Arctic. Now, whether that's negative or positive, I can't say. But I would be cautious to say that I think we need to keep an eye on the situation. And we need to understand how our actions may um, result in in certain types of reactions mm-hmm. from the Chinese and the Russians in the Arctic, particularly um, increased military presence. And so it'll be interesting to watch in the future how China sees itself um, and postures itself in and around the Arctic. And just to remind our listeners, the Arctic Council includes only those countries that are have a portion within the Arctic Circle, but then other countries can come on board as observer states. Exactly. So there are only eight members, all of whom are either EU or NATO members, plus Russia. Mm-hmm. So that is the eight. Right. And of course, we are in there by way of Alaska and Canada, our neighbor. And then um, there are many observers, and China is one. But so are other Asian nations. Uh, so is Japan and Singapore and South Korea mm-hmm. and India. So it'll be very interesting to see how this dynamic plays out. Well, very interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for coming in. Stacy Clausen, Global Fellow with the Kennan Institute here at the Wilson Center. Thank you. Thank you.